Hello, welcome to the Trustworthy AI podcast from Truera. In this series, we speak to leading AI practitioners to demystify the concept of trustworthy AI, focusing initially on financial services. We uncover the real extent of AI adoption in the industry today, the importance of building trust to ensure impact at scale, and practical ways of getting there. My guest today is David Hardoon, who's Managing Director for Data Innovation at the Aboids Group, one of the biggest conglomerates in the Philippines, and who heads data and AI at the group's banking arm, the Union Bank of Philippines. Before this, David was the Chief Data Officer at the Monetary Authority of Singapore, where he authored the world's first ever regulatory guidelines on AI in financial services back in 2018. In David's own words, he's been doing data from before it was cool. He holds a PhD in machine learning and is widely recognized as one of the pioneers of trustworthy AI in financial services. In this session, we'll talk about the role that good regulation can play in promoting adoption of AI at scale. David will share his experiences in the transition from writing guidelines in, on AI to actually putting those in practice in his new role. We'll get David's views on whether AI is living up to its promise in financial services and the skill sets needed to make it happen. And we'll finish off with a bit of crystal gazing from David on the most important areas in which AI can have an impact in the next three to five years. David, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Amik. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. David, at the MAS, you spearheaded the world's first regulatory guidance on responsible AI in financial services. It was called Fairness, Ethics, Accountability and Transparency, or FEET in short. Could you share a little bit more about that, please? Well, let me tell you a bit of a funny story. I know it's a bit odd bringing the word funny when you're talking about such serious things such as fairness, ethics, accountability, transparency. But nonetheless, the intention wasn't to do that when we started off. The intention was, as with many locations, how to encourage and how to promote the adoption of AI, machine learning across the financial sector. And when we started having those pretty deep and heart-to-heart -heart conversations, I mean, regulated financial institutions and really kind of opening up, trying to understand why is the adoption of AI not to the same degree and the same extent that one would see outside of the financial sector. Ironically, again, people may disagree with this to a certain extent, but it was due to the lack of regulation. And the nature of that is because, look, the financial sector is arguably one of the most regulated industries around. And due to the fact that there wasn't any regulation, ironically, and that's, I keep on going, that's why I'm saying it's a bit funny, resulted in a situation that things didn't get adopted to the same degree. So it kind of became a necessity when we realized, okay, if we really want to help promote AI, if we want to help get to a stage when there's a broader degree of adoption, we need to perhaps not yet get to that stage of regulation. We need to provide a certain degree of ring fencing of what's potentially good and what is potentially things that you may want to think about in a lot more detail. That was what gave birth essentially to FEED. And it was a joint collaboration so with CDOs, CAOs, and eventually the lawyers, compliance head, and, and many people across the industry to really think about this in a very pragmatic manner and embrace governance, embrace pseudo-regulation, I guess you call it, in the means of how does it help us do more? How does it help us think about this in a way that can mitigate risk, essentially? That was the origin. That was the intent behind feet, effectively. And as you say, it resulted in what was 
the first piece of documentation out there in the industry, specifically in the financial sector, if not others, to help institutions. Now, naturally, now, forward many years ahead, there are quite a few of them. But that was the reason behind FEET. It was that merger of innovation and governance. Thank you, David. That's fascinating. So regulatory guidance as a way of promoting innovation. Since leaving MAS, I know you've joined the private sector and you've not just joined the private sector, but you've joined a group that has both banking and non-banking arms. As you think back between how you had foreseen feet back then and how you look at the practical barriers to adoption of AI, etc., has any of your thinking changed or at least evolved or in, gotten enriched in terms of how good AI should be built and operated? Yeah, no, and, and obviously, given this is a podcast, you can't see the giant smile on my face from cheek to cheek, you know, jumping from the telling to do to the actually having been told to do and doing. <laughs> but I've kind of realized that feet, which covered again, fairness, ethics, accountability, and transparency. I've kind of got to the stage when I realized, to me at least, all we need is fairness. And I know that borderline sounds like a Beatles song, but actually all we need is fairness. And, and the other dimensions of transparency, ethics, are essentially are required components in order to achieve fairness. In other words, you cannot achieve fairness without the transparency, without the accountability, and without the ethical dimension of it. So I've kind of realized that, in fact, it could even be further simplified to a certain degree. Secondly, when FEET was created, it was deliberately done in such a manner that it was not prescriptive. It wasn't a case of do A, B, C, D, and tick Bob's your uncle. No, it was deliberately done where it kind of provoked thought. For example, if you just take, actually, the, the term justifiability is a kind of a reoccurring theme in the principles. But if you take the first one, which talked about that essentially that it's not about discrimination, it's about unjustifiable disadvantagement. Now, that essentially puts that burden on the developer or the, the internal regulatory uncompliance aspect to think, well, what does that mean? Both in terms of how do I implement something that is able to test for something that's unjustified and something that's disadvantaging. Knowing full well that when the feed elements were introduced, it would require that thought process of like, okay, how do we do it? But it was a necessary and now with the years that have passed, it results in a situation when we're understanding better what are the considerations, and again, they need to be justified, of what constitutes being unfair, if I use that term, or disadvantages essentially to certain groups. In a way, this kind of birthing pains, I believe, has now made it a bit easier for the implementers, for the designers, for the coders, to think about how to, to systematically put it as part of the algorithm, as part of the review procedure, as part of the validation process, essentially, rather than having a conceptual, good-feeling ideology. Thank you, David. So one of the things I'm hearing is that things have become sharper in the distance and that it's become much more uh, focused in terms of what one needs to do to ensure that AI is being built and deployed responsibly. I completely agree with you because I think we all agree that we do not want to discriminate. I think, I think that's something that we can collectively agree on. However, when you go down to math effectively, what does that mean? And what does that mean in a context whereby you have to discriminate? And just to give an example of that, everything we do in the day-to-day has an element of discrimination. Discrimination, by definition, isn't negative. It's just the process of choice of one versus B. And you think of credit. There's a rationale and reason why certain people will get certain amounts of credit versus other, and that's, again, a justifiable one. However, 
there are those situations of unjustifiable decisioning that we want to eliminate. So the agreement from a societal point of view that we do not want to discriminate, how does that get translated to how do we implement it with that in organization? And again, this is a personal view. We needed that sharpening, and I like that term, and we needed that focus in order to identify, ah, okay, this is where we need to focus on. This is what it means. And in certain situations, we can actually say, actually, we're good with the discrimination because we understand what it's doing. We understand how to handle it. And it's justifiable within the context of its potential operation. Fantastic. Maybe moving a little bit away from the concept of responsible deployment of AI, let's just talk about the deployment and uptake of AI itself. Now, almost every financial services firm seems to be hiring data scientists and investing in technology for data and analytics infrastructure. I know you've been on a hiring spree here in Singapore and, and in the Philippines. One estimate suggests that financial institutions alone are spending close to $25 billion annually on AI. What is your view on the extent to which AI or more broadly advanced predictive analytics has lived up to its promise in financial services? That's a good and sometimes a bit loaded question. Let me call a, a spade a spade. I don't think AI had lived up to its expectation. Again, it could be a case of just an element of maturity and an element of understanding of how do you use this hammer effectively? Because at the end of the day, AI is a tool. I mean, it's a beautifully complex array of tools in a even furtherly complex box, but in any way, it's a tool and you need to know how to use it in what problem and in what context. It's not like, oh, to solve everything, just throw AI at it. So I don't actually think AI had fully lived up to expectations, but I think that has been changing over the last couple of years. And the reason why I think it's been changing is because there's a certain degree of, at a lack of a better word, pragmatism of how do we quantify it? How do we assess the applicability of AI in, again, as I was as kind of alluding to earlier, in the context. And that's important because there's a realization that in certain particular situations, in certain particular scenarios, AI isn't your answer. It can't deliver that necessity due to the fact that there's a potential significant material impact to the customers. And therefore, you just simply can't take the risk. And then no point in churning water and constantly trying to find ways of doing it. When you actually realize that push comes to the shove, you simply need that human dimension, at least currently, versus other situations that may not be as enticing and headline worthy, but have a astronomical impact to the business in terms of operational efficiency, cost reduction, or even potential impact from a revenue perspective and you know, customer delight, if I use that term. It's an element of transition. So to your earlier point, it hasn't, because also there was a bit of a confusion of AI research and AI, again, lack of a better word, implementation. They're both AI, they both overlap on one another to a certain degree, but it is the context and the objective that differs quite significantly. One is just having good ideas and I guess writing papers and showing that things can be done. The other one is, well, dollars and cents. Because at the end of the day, organizations want to see the material impact that will come from it. Where you're kind of also finding is that the maturity in terms of the skill sets has also changed. You're finding now that in, say, machine learning ops, especially in Southeast Asia, has been on a significant rise. And that's very important because in order to achieve that pragmatism that I was kind of alluding to earlier, you also need that degree of skill sets that's a bit more akin to the world of, of development, implementation, products, applications, 
with a strong affinity, understanding, and appreciation of machine learning, essentially. It's, it's again, how do you put it in the right scenario? Very interesting. And I like the fact that you're bringing it back to the people. It's very interesting that you note that one of the things that is driving adoption now is that the skill sets in this space are developing at pace as well. Maybe staying on that skill sets and people angle, you've got people you're hiring for the Aboys Group overall, and some of them will be for banking, some for the rest of the business. What would be your message to a young data scientist who's perhaps looking to choose? Should he or she, she in many cases nowadays, should she be joining your bank or should she be joining another financial services firm or actually should she look at another industry altogether? Well, let me, let me take it backwards. So let me actually start off by saying that I think the current environment whereby you're having this asymmetry of regulated industries that are applying AI and unregulated industries that are applying AI will change. It's not a question of whether they will change. The question is, they will change, it's just the when. i much rather embrace, and that's, kind of, again, going back to the very first question you mentioned, that remember, FEET was born not of desire to regulate. It was born out of desire to innovate. So going into industry by saying that, oh, I want to avoid regulation, I want to avoid governance, I, I think that's fundamentally, and again, my personal view, fundamentally the wrong approach to think about things. I mean, again, we shouldn't be doing the right thing because we're told to. We should be doing the right thing because it's the right thing. So let me start with that. Secondly is the perception that regulation or governance mitigates our ability to do cool things, if I borrow your terms, it couldn't be any further from the truth. In fact, I wouldn't say we're, we're living proof of it, but actually we are, we're living proof of it. And I'm, I'm a staunch believer that good governance is a fertile ground for innovation and doing it in a manner that's not opaque. It's not hidden behind closed doors. And only once you get hooked to it, you're told like, oh, by the way, this is what we're actually doing. No, it's done in openness and done in transparency and it's done with the trust. I mean, look at them, some of the surveys that are coming out these days, which I find entertaining, where people trust banks more than trust tech companies or governments. I mean, imagine if someone would have said that back in 2000 or earlier, that people would trust banks more than other companies. That would be my starting points and my advice. Then secondly, I would say, don't just jump in, regardless of the industry. Think about what is it that you want to do. And the reason I say that, and it reminds me, I, I gave a, a short seminar in, in one of the polytechnics in Singapore. I had a student ask me, saying, oh, David, I want to do data science in, in finance. Can you give me advice? And I'm saying, you know, finance is a phenomenally vast field. And data science is a phenomenally vast field. It sometimes feels like it just, you know, if you don't know what it is, just lump it into data science. It's important to have at least some degree of, not just appreciation, but a gauge of, what is it within it that you want to do? Is it the more exploratory and research? Is it implementation and development? Is it in terms of working directly with a, from a B2C, from consumers type of areas, retail? Is it working on industry level? That to me, which ironically, I guess, almost has nothing to do with data science, are really the key questions. Because remember, this world of data science and AI, and eloquently put to me by someone else is reverse engineering the world, reverse engineering the world to solve problems. This is what it is. We are solving problems. So kind of have a gauge of what are the problems that you want to solve? What are the areas? And of course, it doesn't limit you from doing other things later on, but it's a good starting point to really 
hone and sharpen one's own skill sets and ability to deliver in the area that they're interested in. Maybe slightly long-winded in a way, but that is truly what I would recommend and advise to whomever is out there at whatever stage, by the way, wanting to pick a field and pick an area within data science and AI. That is very helpful. I think you've made several important points. I think you made the point about the sense of asymmetry about responsible AI and irresponsible AI is not likely to continue. Indeed, it might not even exist today. It might just exist in people's minds. The expectations are already there, which is why banks are being seen as more trustworthy already. I think you made a very good point. Nothing to do with data science, but in many ways, it is everything to do with data science, which is data science is merely a way of reverse engineering the world. So if you don't know which parts of the world you're interested in, then there's no point thinking about what will I do with AI and financial services. Fantastic. That's a really good piece of advice for any data scientist who's listening into this podcast. My last question, going back to the data scientist in you, as you think about the next three to five years, I shall not ask for a longer termed crystal ball, but as you look into the next three to five years, what are some of the users of AI that you're most excited about, potential users maybe? And since you now sit across both financial services and non-financial services, I'd love for you to give at least one example from each side, financial and non-financial. I had a little nagging feeling you may ask this question. So I was actually thinking quite hard about this in terms of what there may be. And thank you, by the way, for saying at least two to three years, because whenever I got asked the five year, I'm like, oh. Crikey, you know, I don't know what's around the corner, let alone five years from now. Maybe I'll cheat a bit because I think we're started doing that now. So not yet two and three years, but we're kind of starting doing it now. But it hasn't achieved that stage of fruition. That will happen in two, three years from now. And actually, I'll start with the non-financial sector. So one of those areas that I really have been getting, I mean, immensely excited about is the application within ESG and sustainability. And and the reason I get really, really excited is because I'm a, I don't want to call, I I can't call myself a mathematician, but you know, I I came from a world of data science, which essentially is this hybrid of mathematics, computer science, so very hard, it was a left or right hemisphere, you know, logic kind of skill set. So with such terms of ESG sustainability, again, what we can all agree on, I've always had the issue of how do you reconcile it to, to what? What is it, you know, one plus one equals two that we can do to actually result in a quantifiable outcome? To my absolute delight, we found exactly that. So in the areas of manufacturing, the area of power, we've been started off building solutions. Again, whether it's prediction, uh, optimization, it's a bag of tricks, but have resulted in quantifiable mechanism to achieving or even exceeding sustainability goals from reduction of emissions one thing that we achieved, just to give you a concrete example, in, uh, in cement, I mean, an area that who would have imagined to apply data science? Long story short, the goal was to improve the process of cement, essentially the creation of the actual uh, powder, which can be pollutant. So not only it resulted in a business objective that has financial positive impact to the business, it resulted in a quantifiable reduction to emissions. Can it get any better? I mean, that's a Win, 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 in a very literal sense. And similar scenarios in power, where you want to understand what are the potential correlated factors that are resulting in increase or decrease of emissions. Is it the current programs and strategies that we're doing, let's say, to reduce emissions? Is it really working in a quantifiable manner that we've envisioned them to work? And can we predict what will happen? And the answer to all of these are yes. 
just to add the sweetener to me, because a lot of times I think we still envisage ESG and sustainability as, as a bit as regulation, as a, it's a cost to the business. We're able to demonstrate is that not only is it a cost to the business, you're able to reduce cost. I believe, and perhaps I would even add, I hope that over the next two or three years, that will be one of the areas that you really will see an explosion of solutions, capabilities within the whole AI machine learning world. And really that, it's like, how do you merge those two things of business efficiency, cost reduction, risk management, and ESG? So that's one. And as you can hear from my tone of voice, I, I'm genuinely excited about that. Uh, the second one is finance. Not to be a bit philosophical, you know, and again, taking the risk of actually not answering something about AI, which has nothing to do with AI. I'm, again, a very big believer that we've kind of inadvertently deviated from what finance was. And not necessarily what finance is, but at least what finance was. And if I, what I mean by that, if you go back to literally the beginning, finance was, is I go to Shamik and I say, hey, Shamik, can you lend me some money? Because, you know, I'm getting married. I want to build a house. And you'd be like, okay, and I'll pay you back some interest. But there was that conversation. There was a context as to why is it that I want to lend money from you? Because obviously I need, I need to explain it to you. We've now kind of productized things. And again, I understand why it's happened, but it's gone to that stage whereby... It's a product, but I don't know anyone who wakes up in the morning and goes, Shamik, you know something? I dreamt about having a loan and I really saw that loan and it's just wonderful. I want to get that loan. Or I have an empty slot in my wallet. I think I need another credit card. No, there's a reason from managing your cash, you know, having a credit line for that. It's because again, you're buying a house. It's because et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's, it's moments of life. To me, what AI and machine learning can do is that it can bring us and by us, I mean finance, back to that origin of finance without degrading the extent, the size, and the velocity of the machinery of the financial world, essentially. It's not that, oh, I have a loan of you know, 10000 at this amount. It's like, I can customize a loan to an individual. Imagine that to me, that I can literally not have a fixed loan that someone applies to, but it's someone literally imagine providing circumstances and objectives and you're able to on the fly produce a loan that fits the person. Talk about hyper-personalization. Imagine a scenario whereby it's there with someone who's pre-pregnancy, during pregnancy, post-pregnancy, you know, children is a, in a critical moment in someone's life and it's there to enable that need. It, it truly becomes invisible on the one hand, but yet critical as it is really critical well, in our life, essentially. So again, I know it's, I'm answering without answering, but actually to your question about what excites me and what I believe are the, the, like some of the really enticing applications in the next two, three years, it's that. And I think AI can achieve that to that extent. Thank you, David, for that very thoughtful and indeed in places philosophical answer. I think that is a fantastic way to end this podcast. David, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you, Shamin. The pleasure has been all mine. And thank you for listening. I hope you all found this interesting. For more information, please swipe on the cover art, follow Truera on LinkedIn and Twitter, or visit our website for future podcasts in this series as we continue to look at different aspects of building trust in AI. Thank you.